If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11, the text that uh, Sam read for us. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Don't you enjoy watching Sam try to explain Old Testament prophecy to kids? <laughs> uh, see, I have a hard enough time uh, explaining it to myself. Uh, and he gets to explain it to kids. But uh, we're going to try to understand this, this passage. And, and we're in this passage because it's the passage that Matthew points us to uh, when he speaks of, of Herod's rage against the children and the, the, the flight into Egypt that uh, the angel told them to take in order to save uh, the baby Jesus' life. You'll, you'll remember that when the wise men... Uh, from the east showed up in Jerusalem asking where they could find the one who had been born king of the Jews, Herod uh, was none too pleased. Uh, Matthew tells us that he was greatly troubled. But nevertheless, when the priests and the scribes told him that this king was to be born in Bethlehem, he sent the wise men on their way and, and told them to go and search for the child and then report back to him when they found him. He said that he wanted to go and worship the child too, but of course we will see that his motives were far more sinister. Herod wanted to kill the child. He, he wanted to kill this king of the Jews who posed a threat to his throne and to his dynasty. And so he, he sent the wise men on his way hoping to find out where the child was so that he could take his life. But of course, God knew what Herod was up to, and he warned the wise men not to return to Herod, and that's what they did. After they found Jesus and presented him with their gifts, they returned to their own country by another way. But Herod was not so easily deterred. He, he wanted the child dead, and he intended to kill him. And so Matthew tells us that then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. We'll be looking at Herod's murderous rage more closely next Sunday in the next prophecy that Matthew mentions. But this morning, I, I want us to consider the, the flight to Egypt that that murderous rage Necessitated. Matthew tells us that an angel came to Joseph and warned him uh, that, that Herod intended to destroy the child. And he told him to rise immediately and to go and to take the child and his mother into Egypt. And then he says that all of this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And it's that prophecy that we hear here in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Here we have the prophecy that Matthew is referring to. But the problem is that when you look at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, when you look at that in context, it's not at all clear that Hosea is talking about the Messiah. In fact, it's not at all clear that it's even a prophecy to be fulfilled. That was clear in Micah chapter 5, uh, the passage that we looked at last Sunday. Everyone knew that the ruler to be born in Bethlehem was the Messiah. Everyone knew that this, this king was, <clears throat> was the long-promised Savior. That's why the scribes and the Pharisees could tell Herod where the Messiah was to be born. 
But that's not the case with Hosea 11.1. This is, this is not clearly a prophecy about Jesus. It's not even clearly a prophecy that bears fulfilling. On the contrary, when you look at this verse in context, Hosea 11.1 seems to be a mere historical statement. Hosea is talking about the historical exodus. He's, he's talking about that time when God used Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, out from under the, 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 the oppression of Pharaoh, out from their slavery and their bondage. He's talking about a past completed historical event. And so the first question that we have to wrestle with this morning, before we actually get into what this, how Jesus fulfills this prophecy, we have to first ask, how is this a prophecy? How is it a prophecy that, that Jesus fulfills? We know it's a prophecy because Matthew tells us it's a prophecy. But it's not at all clear how that is. Well, there are two possible answers to that question. The first possibility is that Matthew is speaking generally. That he, he knows full well that Hosea 11.1 1 is, is not a specific prophecy about Jesus. He, he knows that Hosea is speaking about the historical exodus of God's people out of Egypt. But, but he sees Jesus as following the same pattern, as, as following in the same footsteps, as in some sense reliving Moses's, or uh, Israel's history. He's, he's reenacting the history that, that they lived through in previous generations. Just as God had, had sent uh, Israel into Egypt during a time of famine in order to protect them and to, and to provide for them, so also God sends Jesus into Egypt for His protection. And just as God then brought Israel out of Egypt in, in His time, so also in His time God will call Jesus out of Egypt back into the promised land. In other words, Matthew is saying that, that Jesus is reenacting Israel's history. And we know that this view has some merit because Matthew continues to do this in the next chapters. He, he continues to show us the, the parallels between Israel's history and Jesus' life in chapters 3 and 4. Jesus will pass through the waters of baptism and then spend 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. And this follows the pattern of Israel's history. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, which Paul explicitly calls a baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. And then they spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested. And so it's, it's clear as we read through Matthew's Gospel that, that he intends his readers to see Jesus reenacting Israel's history, retracing Israel's steps. And this is because he wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment or as the fulfiller of the mission that Israel failed to fulfill. That, that mission to, to be God's kingdom on earth. Remember that, that when God called Abraham, who was the father of Israel, when God called Abraham, he, he called him to be a great nation. He called him to be his nation. Abraham's children were to be God's kingdom of, of righteousness and peace on earth as it is in heaven. They were to be the instrument by which God would cause his blessings to flow far as the curse is found. They were to be the instrument by which God would bless all the families of the earth. 
but they failed. Because of their faithlessness, they fell short of the glory that God had for them. But God was not willing to allow His purposes to to go unfulfilled. God was not willing to, to allow the faithlessness of His people to thwart His plan. And so God sent Jesus to do what Israel had failed to do. God sent Jesus to be the fulfillment of His promise to, to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's seed. And that is what Matthew wants us to see as he again and again shows us Jesus, in some sense, reenacting Israel's history. He is the true Israelite. He is the one who fulfills the God's purpose for the nation of Israel. And therefore, some people think that that's exactly what Matthew's getting at here when he says that, that Matthew fulfills this historical statement about Israel's exodus. He isn't saying that Hosea 11.1 1 is a specific prophecy about Jesus, but rather he is saying that in a general way, Jesus is, is reliving Israel's history in order to bring to fulfillment the plan of redemption that they had failed to fulfill because of their faithlessness. This is actually the, the view of this passage that I was taught as a child. I assume some of you have probably been taught this view as, as well. It's a, it's a way to make sense of, of Matthew's difficult statement that this was to fulfill Hosea 11.1. 1. But there's a problem with this view, in my opinion. And the problem is that Matthew doesn't use the phrase, this was to fulfill, in a general way. When Matthew shows us Jesus generally fulfilling Israel's history, generally retracing Israel's steps, he doesn't say this was to fulfill. He just shows us the parallels and allows us to, to see them and to, to draw our conclusions. Because when he uses the phrase, this was to fulfill, he is always talking about a specific prophecy. A prophecy which can clearly be attached to Jesus. And so therefore, it doesn't seem likely to me that, that, Mo, that Matthew is here using the phrase, this was to fulfill in a general way. But if Matthew isn't speaking generally, then that just brings us back to square one. It, leaves us, it brings us back to the question, if, if he's not speaking generally, how is Hosea 11.1 a prophecy to be fulfilled? And I think we find our answer to that question not in assuming that, that Matthew is speaking generally, but to, by remembering that he is speaking broadly. Hosea 11.1 is part of a larger passage. It is part of the, this chapter that Sam read for us. And that passage is clearly a prophecy to be fulfilled, and it is clearly a prophecy that can be fulfilled only by Jesus. It is often pointed out that when New Testament authors quote or, or allude to Old Testament texts, they often have not just the single verse that they quote in mind, but the entire passage. We, we see this again and again throughout the New Testament, and I am convinced that that is what is going on here. When Matthew says that this was to fulfill, he isn't saying that this was to fulfill only Hosea 11.1. 1. He is saying that this is to fulfill the prophecy that begins with Hosea 11.1. 1. And so therefore, if we are going to understand the significance of, of Jesus' flight into Egypt, we need to understand the significance of this entire chapter. So let's look at it together. 
beginning with verse 1. Because when we understand that that Matthew is talking about the entire chapter, we are free to to see Hosea 11.1 as it is, as a reference to Israel's exodus from Egypt. God called his children, his his chosen people, the, the children of Abraham, he called them out of Egypt. He brought them out by his own own strong right arm. And when he did that, when he he brought his children out of Egypt, he was demonstrating not only his power, he was doing that. He was demonstrating his power by by defeating the gods of Egypt, by by, by, uh, pounding Pharaoh into submission. But he was not only demonstrating his power. When he brought his children out of Egypt, he was also demonstrating his deep love and commitment to his chosen people. God had made majestic promises to Abraham, and he was not going to let those promises go unfulfilled. His will, not Pharaoh's, would be done. But despite God's faithfulness to his promises, despite God's deep love for his people, Israel proved faithless. We see this in verse 2. Hosea tells us the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And if you were at all familiar with Israel's long, sad history of idolatry and unfaithfulness, you know exactly what he is Talking about, but even in the midst of their faithlessness, notice God was to them a loving parent. We see this in verse 3. He says, Yet I, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by the arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. It's, it's a picture of a child, of a, of a parent caring for their child, gently teaching them to walk, and when they fall and scrape their knee, gently healing their wounds. It's a, it's a parent lovingly caring and bringing up even their obstinate, rebellious child. Then in the next verse, he, he changes the image just slightly. Now he pictures himself as a good shepherd. He says, I led them with cords of kindness. I didn't drive them with a whip. I led them with cords of of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke of the jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. It's a shepherd who who gently cares for and and tends to his sheep. This is God's love for his people, even in their obstinance, even in their rebellion, even in their their stubborn hard-heartedness. God cares for them. But despite God's tender, patient care for His people, they refused to return to Him. They refused to repent and honor Him as their God. They refused to live as His children, as His chosen people. And so eventually God says in verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria will be their king. There's actually a little bit of a question about how best to translate verse 5. If you have an ESV, you'll notice that there's a footnote that says that can also be translated as, they shall surely return to Egypt. So it could say they shall not return to Egypt, or they shall say they shall surely return to Egypt. And the Hebrew can be translated either way, and that is incredibly frustrating. Uh, It's incredibly frustrating to think that the the same phrase could be translated either way, and, and the only way to determine it is by context. And so here the, the translators have decided that it's best to go with shall not return to Egypt. But I think the context actually points in the other direction. Because if you look at the end of the chapter, 
we see in verse 11 that they're going to be returning from Egypt. And if they're going to return from Egypt, they had to go there in the first place. And so I think it's better to, to read this as they shall return to Egypt and, they, and Assyria shall be their king. He's saying, they, I'm going to send them off into exile. They are again going to come under the, uh, the oppression and the, the power of the, the present evil kingdoms of this world. But either way, however you read that verse, verse 5 is clearly announcing God's intention to send His people out of the promised land. He's he clearly announcing his intention to send them again into exile. And this is what is described in verses 6 and 7. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. I'm going to send them into exile. Foreign powers are going to come against them and oppress them. And when they cry out to me in that moment, I will not listen. I will not rescue them. I'm going to allow them to go into captivity. Because God's people had repeatedly proven faithless, God is now casting them off. He's casting them out of the promised land. He is sending them back into Bondage, whether into Assyria or, or Egypt, makes no difference. The point is that they will be subject to foreign powers. And we know that this is fulfilled in Israel's history. First, the, the northern tribes go to Assyria, then the, the southern tribes into Babylon. We know that this plays out, but, but what I want you to notice is that it breaks God's heart to do it. Look again at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And, and how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. God has said that He is going to send his, his, his people into exile, but it breaks His heart to do it. What if your parents ever said to you when, when you were young, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? They usually said that before giving you a spanking. And it's really hard for children to believe that that is possibly true. But what is the parent expressing when they, when they say that, that the parent is expressing that it breaks their heart to punish their child? They take no delight in punishing their child. And in a sense, that is what God is saying here. I take no delight in punishing you. And that is good news. Not because it means they will not punish at all, but because it means that because of their love, the punishment will not be an end in itself. When loving parents punish their children, it is never about the punishment itself. They are always punishing for the child's good. They are, they are disciplining. They are correcting. They are bringing back to health. It is not about retribution. It is not uh, about retaliation. It is a means and not an end. It is for harm and not for good. And that is exactly what God is saying about the exile. Yes, God is going to send them into exile. When he, when he says that I will not execute my burning anger, he, he does not mean that I will not punish them at all. But rather what He means is that I will not 
put an end to them. I will not pour out my wrath in full that which they could not in no way possibly bear. He will send them into exile, but he will not utterly destroy them. He will not make them like Admon, like Zeboim, two cities mentioned in Deuteronomy 29 that were utterly and, and forever destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason that he will not do this, he says, is because I am not a man. I am God, the Holy One, in your midst. In other words, God is not a man that he should lie. He is not a man that he should forget his promises. He's not a man that he should change his mind and go back on his word. He is the Holy One. And his words will not return to him void. He is the Holy One. And he will accomplish all of his stated purposes. So yes, God is going to send his people into exile. But no, he will not make a full end of them. And eventually, in his time, he will bring them home. He will bring them back to the promised land and he will establish them as his kingdom on earth. That is the predictive promise of Hosea chapter 11. That is the, the prophecy that Matthew is referring to. That is the prophecy that is fulfilled when he says, all this took place to fulfill the prophecy that says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Notice Hebrew, Hosea 11 begins and ends with God calling his children out of Egypt. And that will be fulfilled because Jesus went into Egypt. But to understand exactly the significance of, of how Jesus fulfills this, we have to look at the strange image of verse 10. This was the image that, that Sam was, was talking to the children about. And it is a strange image. He says, They shall go after the Lord when He roars like a lion. When He roars, His, his children shall come trembling from the west. It is a strange thing to, to think of running towards a roaring lion. The, the picture of, of children running towards a, a roaring lion it's not an image that we see elsewhere in, in the Old Testament. In fact, when this image is used throughout the Old Testament, when the Old Testament prophets speak of the Lord as a, as a roaring lion, it is almost always, I say almost because I can't find any examples, but you always got to cover your bases. There might be one, but I looked at every instance of, of lion in the Old Testament, and, and every time the Lord is described as a roaring lion, it is a picture of His judgment. For example, in Amos chapter 3 we read, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It's the same context that we have in, in Hosea chapter 11. God has brought His people out of Egypt, but they have continued to rebel against them, and therefore they will now suffer His punishment. They will now endure his wrath. And in that context, the prophet asks, does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? The picture of God as a roaring lion is a picture of judgment. And in fact, even Hosea uses it that way. Look, turn back to chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5, verse 14. 
Isaiah chapter 5, verse 14, again, God is, is speaking of the judgment that is about to come, and he says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue God is saying, my judgment is coming against Israel, and even if they look to the powers of this earth, even if they look to Egypt as they were tempted to do, no one will be able to save them from the punishment that is coming against them. We see it again in Hosea chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Again, God speaking of the judgment that is coming on Israel. He says, I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip, open, uh, would rip them open. It is a, a violent image. It, it is a picture of God coming upon his people like a roaring lion. It is a picture of judgment. And that is always the way that this image is used throughout the Old Testament prophets. And when you understand that, when you understand the, the image of a, of a roaring lion as a picture of God's wrath against his people, the, the question only intensifies, why then does, do the people run to him when he roars? seems there are at least two ways to, to make sense of this. First, it's possible that Hosea is saying that, that God's judgment will be directed not against Israel, but against Israel's oppressors. The, the lion will roar not against e Israel, but against Egypt and, and Assyria. And when he roars, they will be terrified and let their people go. Makes sense logically, but it is Israel's sins, and not the sins of Egypt and Assyria that are in view in this passage. And so when the lion roars, it seems most likely that he is roaring against the sins of Israel. Therefore, a better possibility is that this image is meant to be confusing. That the lion roars against Israel's sins, and yet at the same time, the people of Israel flee to him for salvation. I wonder if even Hosea understood the image that he was Describing. It is a confusing image, to say the least, but it is an image that comes to make beautiful sense when we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think about what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 3. In fact, just turn there with me. See, the, see this passage with your own eyes. Romans chapter 3. It's a familiar passage that, that begins with all sinning and falling short of the, the glory of God. But then what does he say? But all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a word we don't use very often in the modern church, but it is a word we should get to know because a propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. That's what propitiation is. And God tells us, Paul tells us that God put forward Jesus as our propitiation. He is the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath from us. And why did God put forward His Son? Look again at verse 26. He says, This was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. God puts forward his son as a propitiation, as a, a sacrifice that turns away wrath so that he might be both just, that is, that he might be the judge who justly punishes sin, and the justifier, the Savior, who pardons sin and receives back the sinner as a beloved child. In Jesus, the propitiation, we see Jesus. Uh, we, we see God's wrath. We, we see God the roaring lion. We see God the judge. And at exactly the same time, in Jesus, we see God the merciful Savior who pours His wrath out not on His children, but on His own Son. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath that we might instead drink the cup of His blessing. And so, when we see Him, we flee not from Him, but to Him. You see, when God sent Jesus into Egypt and then called Him back, Jesus wasn't merely retracing Israel's steps. But Jesus was being preserved that He might make it possible for Israel themselves to be called out of Egypt. Jesus was called out of Egypt so that His sinful people might be called out of Egypt. Jesus was called out of Egypt so that we might be called out of Egypt. God's plan all along was to establish His beloved people as His kingdom on earth. But in order to do that, He had to be both just and the justifier. If He wasn't just, there would be no kingdom of righteousness. If he wasn't the justifier, there would be no kingdom of righteousness. And so in Jesus, the lion roars and the people come. And justice and peace kiss. And the kingdom of God is established on earth as it is in heaven. And so if you are here this morning and you find yourself in Egypt, if you find yourself far from God and justly condemned, he is calling you home. Yes, He is a roaring lion. But His wrath has been satisfied by another. And if you have begun in your, your life to be distracted by, the, uh, by the, the cares and concerns of this present evil age, and you have forgotten the hope that is yours as a child of God, hear afresh the good news of Christmas. Hear afresh the good news of the Savior born in Bethlehem. In Him, you have a way back. In Him, you have a way home. In Him, you can come out of Egypt. And you can dwell in the kingdom of God. That is the good news of Christmas. Jesus went into Egypt and came out again. That we, who justly deserve bondage in Egypt, might come out, might come home, might be made heirs of the coming kingdom. And because that prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for this blessed promise, Father, that Jesus went into Egypt not just to, to reenact Israel's history, but He went into Egypt and came out again that we might come out, that we might come home. 
Father, may we come trembling to Him even this morning as our only hope, as our only Savior, as our only refuge. And may we rest upon Him both now and forevermore. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.